Hey, Alex. Hey, Michael. How are you? I'm fine. Welcome to the first ever phone-in edition of the Canadian Jewish Move. You will probably hear an audio difference here, listeners, um, because Alex and I are calling each other from our home uh, because of obvious reasons. COVID-19 has caused us all to work from home, which means we don't have access to the audio equipment. We are not a sophisticated enough operation to have our own individual audio equipment at our homes. Um, so this is this is what you get this week. Uh, but we're gonna we're gonna keep this one short. Alex, what's what's the first thing we're gonna be talking about on this uh, this week's edition? Yeah, well, we've both been reporting about the ways the coronavirus is affecting the Jewish community. So we thought we'd take some of the most interesting interviews and, and angles that we've learned about and just share it with some of our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and after that, we're going to talk about one way you might want to pass the time uh, during this self period of self-isolation, and that's with the new Amazon show Hunters, which is extremely Jewish and somewhat controversial. Um, so we're going to ask, do Jews need to worry about Hunters, as some believe you do? Yeah. Um, um, John, just to start, why don't we, uh, why don't, why don't we just, why don't we just get into it? Uh, <laughs> this, this virus thing has really uh, messed things up for a lot of people. The self isolation is really in, inconveniencing slash killing people. Um, for me personally, living in Niagara Falls, I only came into the office two days a week anyway, so working from home full time is not a big stretch for me. Uh, Alex, how are you dealing with it? Uh, it's actually fantastic because a lot of like work as a journalist, it's just waiting around for people to get back to you. And when you're stuck in the office waiting around, you're just at your computer with nothing to do. But, you know, I, I can like make myself lunch. I can work out and with the weights we have downstairs, I can do stuff that feels productive while I'm, while I'm waiting around. So I've, I've been really liking it. And, you know, you still get your work done at the same time. You just feel like you're doing more things at home that you wouldn't be able to do if you were somewhere else. So I've, I've been having a good time. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear it. I do think we're, we're, you and I are pretty lucky because we work in the media and yeah. the media is one of the industries that is not hit very hard. If anything, if we've probably every news organization has experienced an influx of new traffic, um, mm-hmm. People are sitting at home. People are reading the news. So, uh, you know, not not to sound to uh, not not to make light of this or anything, but so you and I are fortunate to be working in an industry that actually lends itself well to you know self isolation and panic. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, <laughs> our product is more desired, and our ability to get it out. I mean, the print issue is it's a bit different, and I know the editors. Like uh, our news editor was saying with a smaller monitor, it's tougher for her. But in general, we can do most of the work from home and it doesn't affect our process too much. So, yeah, we are definitely lucky in that way. With the exception of this podcast, which we are recording on our phones. Uh, (laughs) Even now I get to pace around my room, (laughs) which is what I normally like to do when I'm having a conversation, which, you know, you can't do when you're sitting at a microphone. (laughs) That's true. That's true. At least not with our studio set up. uh, so so let's let's get into it though. Uh, while, yeah. while you and I have have been somewhat fortunate, um, you know, economically and socially in, in this uh, in this in these dire times, other people have not been. And because this is the Canadian Jewish News, we're going to be talking about Canadian Jewish institutions. 
Um, so Alex, you being a news reporter for the CJN, you've been talking with people about how they have been handling this situation. So, so why don't you explain to, to me and to our listeners a little bit about what you've been writing about? Yeah, just the, the way that, um, especially synagogues and funeral homes, those are the people I spoken to the most so far this week have been handling it. And, you know, funerals are gravesides if you're fewer people. Shivas are, you're supposed to video call or telephonically and not go into the house unless, you know, I guess your immediate family. Bar mitzvahs, weddings, all kinds of life cycle events are either being shut down or reduced to the um, maximum of a minion, depending on where it is. But I think what's most interesting from what I've learned this week is that a lot of people obviously are very concerned that they're in mourning and they want to say the Kaddish, but that's a prayer that requires a minion, right? So I talked to a rabbi yesterday, Rabbi Daniel Karavkin at Beth Abraham Yosef of Toronto, an Orthodox synagogue in Thornhill. And I asked him about the Kaddish. Well, he, he brought it up. I was planning on asking him about it, but he said people are very concerned about it. But um, the purpose of the Kaddish, I don't know how familiar all our listeners are with the actual words of the Kaddish, but it says nothing about the dead person, your departed loved one. It's all about exalting the name of God. And the rabbi said that's because the purpose of the Kaddish is to elevate the soul of your loved one that's, that's passed on. Because when you do something virtuous in the world, it's for the credit of that person's soul. That's kind of the purpose of, of these things. And so what he was saying is that you don't need to say the Kaddish to be virtuous. You could study Mishnah, you could say other Psalms or other prayers. You can even just do something generally good, like volunteering in their name or, you know, um, helping homeless people or going to a hospital in the memory of that person. And you're still creating virtue for them and, and honoring their name in that way and helping to elevate their soul. And I thought that was really interesting because... Well, people probably aren't going to be wanting to go to a hospital right now, though. No, that, that was the example he gave. Obviously, it's not the time for that. But there's still... Certainly, there are a lot of opportunities to help people out. If you go drive groceries to sick or elderly people who aren't able to get it themselves, you know, that's... And you do it in the name of a loved one, presumably that would be a way of honoring them and their memory. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, I've also read a little bit about people... Um, holding virtual, you know, live streamed uh, events like that, like like, shiva, like Shiva's, or, or I think I even read one about reading the Kaddish as well, or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. are, are, are you, have you heard a lot about that as well? Yeah, people are doing a lot of live stream services, a lot of live stream just sessions and like uh, Torah studies. There's also someone I was talking to, I think um, Rabbi Boris Dolan at Doshe Emmett in Montreal said they were having like kind of a music night, like an open mic night over Zoom. So I think it's kind of ironic that when we don't have access to the physical communal spaces that we kind of take for granted, we realize how much they mean to us, at least it seems like for a lot of people. And they're going to efforts to efforts to be part of these groups and communities that they might not have done before when it was always there for the taking. Right. I mean, it's, it's a classic concept of you don't know what you have until it's gone. Um, a lot of people... Uh, from from what I've been reporting as well on, on the art side, have been talking about how this really underscores the importance of social gatherings, coming together, you know, watching live performances and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we get into that too much, I will talk about it in a minute. Um, what have, have there have you had any other interesting conversations or revelations about how Canadian Jews are handling this? Um, I'm going to be writing a story about how Jews are helping other Jews. There's the Facebook group Kavod19. I don't know if you saw it. So I spoke to the founder yesterday. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> that's pretty good. Really right? Pun. Yeah, 
Oh, he'll probably listen to this podcast. He'll be so happy to get a response. Um, so that's Josh Babbins. He's, you may re- remember him from the episode where we previewed the Canadian election. Um, and yeah, it's uh, 4,000 people, 5,000 people strong. It's just people, it's trying to connect people who need help and are able to give help very basically. And, and you know, people looking for advice and some of it is uh, like groceries or other essentials. Some of it what to do for kids, just like resources, all kinds of things. Um, and it's really just like an online virtual community hub where Toronto Jews can gather. And he said they're making them in other cities too now. And, you know, there's something – he was inspired by a, a just general Toronto one, and it's a great idea, but there's something that we get by having a Jewish group. And, I mean, this is me speaking now. I think, you know, in terms of our specific needs, but also understanding of each other and just a sense of – connectedness that you get from like we're, we're having similar experiences Jewish people whether or not we keep kosher we understand what it means to keep kosher and to keep Shabbat and to have to say the Kaddish and be wondering how you're going to fulfill your obligation to your uh, dead parent right things like that in ways that are Jewish in the same, same way that other cultures have their own traditions in it so yeah I think it's, it's pretty great the non-religious part of me is very inclined to say God understands that you can't do everything like for the next month or two, you know, like I feel like it, there are circumstances even in the Bible. It's like, do this if you can. And if you can't, for whatever reason, it's okay. Yeah. The, the religion. Right? I mean, there's even, there's even, if you think about like fasting, like that's, you know, like if you can't, cause yeah. you're sick, it's okay. This feels like one of those exceptions. Yeah, no, the, the religious part, of you would say the same thing, or at least the religious parts of our societies are, because all the rabbis are saying, listen, it's not a mitzvah to go to a minion when it endangers lives or things like that, right? You have to take the health and security and safety of people first, and that's why they're saying, like, what you just said, yeah, that that comes first, and there are other things you can do to fulfill the obligations and duties and mitzvahs in different ways, but... Right. Yeah. Has, has, has anyone... Um talked about how it's affecting the holidays. I know it kind of screwed up a lot of Purim celebrations, uh, Passovers around the corner. That's one of the biggest gatherings. Are people worried about that? I'm, I'm sure people are. I haven't spoken to many Passover people yet. I'm going to talk to people doing a Passover food drive later today, but that hasn't happened yet. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, I'm sure it will, uh, you know, it, it, depending on, on how much you enjoy big family gatherings, it will either be a, a, a very unfortunate or very fortunate <laughs> yeah. excuse to not to not go to a Seder. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, what, what have you learned about the way the Jewish arts community is handling this? Right. So all the arts um, communities in general, like this is not exclusive to Jewish ones, um, have basically had to cancel programming. Um, I, I spoke primarily to, to theater and film. I spoke to a few people. Uh, the Toronto Jewish Film Festival is the biggest one. They haven't yet decided what they're going to do. Their festival usually starts in May, as it was supposed to this year. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of holding out a little bit. Um, they're they're planning to postpone live events and guests that they always fly in, either documentary subjects or filmmakers, um, things like that. They're planning to postpone that to the fall. Mm. Hopefully this will all blow over by then, but also who knows? Uh, yeah. And they're also trying to do something kind of interesting. They they wanted to um, kind of reconfigure, reimagine what a film festival could be. So there, there's a digital platform they're looking at 
that's basically like a film festival, except you buy the ticket, you and you have to sit down at your computer and log into a certain website, like with a password at a certain time, and then like you watch the screening at 8 p.m. of like right. this world premiere or whatever, but like from your home along with however many other ticket holders there are. Presumably there would be an unlimited number, which is maybe beneficial even <laughs> for the film festival to yeah. increase ticket sales if that catches on. Um, but it's kind of an interesting idea, and frankly, it's more inclusive for people who aren't in Toronto. Or people yeah. who can't make it to the theater on that day. So or people with I, disabilities I, or other access exactly, needs. Exactly. So, so I'm, I'm I'm genuinely interested and plan to follow up with them uh, in the future about how this model affects their um, uh, their their festival. Uh, and I know that they're interested in that in that question as well. Um, in the meantime, they're also mentioning, and I'll mention it here, a little plug for their free streaming website called JFlix. Uh, they've actually noticed their traffic double as of March 11th from their previous week's normal numbers. Wow. Um, it makes sense. It makes sense. I mean, people are sitting at home. You're looking for things to do. Uh, for our audience members out there who are listening to this podcast, if you're looking for free movies, free Jewish movies, uh, JFlix is the website to check out. Um, it, it's basically where they host all their old, uh, or I should say former um the films that they formerly screened at the festival. So all of a, of a fairly high quality. Um, and it's like, uh, yeah, that's, that's just a, a nice alternative to Netflix or, or Amazon Prime or whatever else you have going on. Um, as far as live theater goes, I spoke to two people. I spoke to Lisa Rubin, the, um, who's heading the uh, Siegel Center in Montreal. Mm-hmm. And uh, I spoke to the co-artistic directors of the Harold Green Jewish Theater Company here in Toronto. Both of them basically had to do the same thing, uh, which is just cancel everything as of right now, um, which is particularly difficult for the, uh, the, the the countless number of gig workers who, including actors, you know, set designers, uh, uh, stage managers, and, and just anybody, carpenters, painters, like people are involved in the theater community, generally book their time in advance for a certain window and they kind of need that cash flow. Like it's not easy to just find something else in the interim. Um, mm-hmm. So, so they've both had to cancel the um, sort of er- close early some of their shows and postpone or cancel upcoming shows. I know um, at the Siegel Center, they were planning a run of a play called Oslo, which is about the Israeli peace accords. Um, oh yeah. That was, that was supposed to run from April to May. They had everything done. They built the sets. The actors memorized all their lines. Like they had the ads mocked up. They had the whole lighting design. Like they, they made the investment, but they just had to cancel the whole thing. Um, so, and so, how, how do how do they deal with you know a cancellation like that? Well, there's a few ways. So, with a lot of these organizations, they're, they're different, right? The Siegel Center is is a venue and organization, and, and Harold Green is a theater company. Um, right. So, the sort of differences organizationally, but generally speaking. These organizations rely on a combination of private fundraising, government grants, and ticket sales. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget who it was. It, it actually might have been the Toronto Jewish Film Festival. It told me that only up to 20% of their ticket sales, uh, or, or rather I should say 20% of their annual income comes from ticket sales. Um, that's obviously not a universal number, but it, it gives you an impression of, of how much ticket sales actually matter. Um mm-hmm. Like grants and private fundraising is extremely important. So right. those two things haven't necessarily disappeared. I feel like if you're the kind to 
privately donate to a, a, a theater company. You're not going to stop because of COVID-19, even if you can't see the play, because you want the theater company to continue existing. So it's it's, it's unclear yet. I don't think anything's going to like shutter for good, um, and they all have fairly stable finances to one degree or another, so that they'll mm -hmm. be able to kickstart again next year probably. Um, mm -hmm. I know the guys at Harold Green said that they wanted to that they plan to uh, postpone one of their shows and just fold it into the next next year's season. Um, so you know it it, it kind of varies. Um, certainly, the people who are hardest hit, I think, are the actors and and the gig workers in those industries because they just can't like there, there's not much that they can do in the interim, right? Like they still have to pay rent. It's just now they have no job for a month or two. Um, yeah. So. So we'll see what, what the uh, – I mean, I know the federal government announced some measures yesterday that will address some of those concerns, but we'll see how far it goes, I guess. Um, yeah, it's it's rough. It's a rough time to be in the arts right now. Yeah, yeah I can imagine. Um, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. I, I hope everything turns out for the best. And uh, on that note, why don't we – pivot a little bit and talk about one piece of art yeah <laughs> which is not not uh uh in any kind of precarious situation because it's already been produced it's already on amazon prime uh, and it's one of the few things that that a nice jewish person can do during this coronavirus quarantine <laughs> exactly exactly if you're looking for something to binge uh we're gonna we're gonna pivot now to talking about the tv show hunters um this is uh, a very, uh, I don't even know where to start with Hunter. There's so, it tries to be so many things to so many people. Um, yep. Why don't we start? Why don't Wait. we start by giving a First, a we have to ask, Michael, do the Jews need to worry about it, right? Do the Jews need to worry about Hunters? Some <laughs> Jews are worried about Hunters. Uh, why don't we start by giving a brief overview of what this hodgepodge of a TV program is? Uh, Alex, do you wanna do you wanna take that mantle? All right. Well, I'll say I've only watched the first episode, um, so I'll. What I understand of it so far is basically it's 1977 in America, and there's an underground Nazi conspiracy basically, and they're still trying to start. I guess start the Fourth Reich. So spoilers, but if you've seen the trailers, you probably know all this. And if you if it's in the trailers, I feel like it's fair game. And there's a bunch of people who are hunting Nazis, and they're led by. Al Pacino playing an old Jewish survivor and Logan Lerman is the, I guess the main character whose grandmother, his Safta was in the camps with Al Pacino's character. Right. Um, the, the, the main kid, this Logan Lerman kid, uh, never, never loses a moment to, to emphasize my Safta when he's yeah. referencing his, how much he loves his, Safta. Um, yeah. This show is really, in some ways, impressively, granularly Jewish. Like, like I write about Jewish TV a lot. I've talked about it a lot on this podcast. This show is far and away the most Jewish piece of television I've ever seen because it's Jewish in such a nuanced, detailed, specific way. Like, like there's so much Hebrew and prayers and, and rituals and references to specific concentration camps like it's really it's really granular and it's uh it's in it, in that light it's it's impressive um because you don't see that a lot in pop culture like 
you see more, you know, this is all, Amazon's the network that brought us Transparent and Mrs. Maisel as well, right? And these shows always talk about, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, oi, oi vey, uh, uh, Yom Kippur is coming, I need a brisket, or, or let's go to Israel and talk a bit about Israel. Like, it's sort of a little bit more broad. Um, yeah. And it's still extremely Jewish, but it's not, not nearly as, like, specifically Jewish as this show is. Um, like intimately Jewish, so so that's kind of impressive. Yeah. Alex, what what, um, what what did you make of of the first episode? I've actually watched the whole season. I watched it while doing other things like cooking, so I didn't watch it very closely. Um, and, but Alex, and you wrote about it, <laughs> and I, I did write about it for for the DJN a couple weeks ago. Um, all right. But what did you think? So first of all, I want to say the disclaimer that. You know, when you're watching something out of obligation, at least me, when it's like, quote unquote, homework, um, you may might watch it differently than if it's out of your own volition because you think you might enjoy it, which is my way of saying it. I was very critical of it, but that's because I was watching it with a critical lens. <laughs> um, there are a lot of things that frustrated me about the show. One of them is that, um, it, like you said, it tries to be everything to all people. It should just be like revenge porn. It shouldn't try to be so clever and and introspective and profound, in my opinion, because it's not that good at it. It's trying to have these really smart characters, but there are going to be light spoilers here. But they don't actually make the characters smart. They just make everyone around them really dumb. And, like, when, when Logan Lerman's character beats Al Pacino's character in chess in two moves, like, you just got to be really fucking bad at chess to lose in two moves. That doesn't say anything about how smart Logan Lerman is. But when he solves, like, the, the rapist case, he's like, it's the same as the bust line. I don't know, it infuriates me. It, or, or, or when the FBI agent walks in the shower and, and closes the door and, um, and says that, that, um, What's going, what's going on? Is someone, is someone telling you loud. to stop yelling so much? I'm being too loud, yeah. I'm gonna... <laughs> <laughs> the is working from home. I, I, it got I, you but... so worked up that your mom is <laughs> yelling at you to be quiet? <laughs> she didn't yell at me. She just suggested I, I stopped distracting my sister who's also trying to work. But Oh, that's brilliant. But, but she goes in the shower, closes the door, and then she's like, she was gassed. And she's smart enough to figure out she was gassed, but not smart enough to figure out that this German woman who came here in 1948 was gassed by a company called Abraham and Son. Like, I know I, I'm watching the show. I know what it's about, but, like, come on. <laughs> and there was no way. They didn't even show. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 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 We got to reveal this back a little bit, Alex. I, <laughs> you don't it's, reveal it's, every plot point of the first episode. I know. Um, I, sorry yeah, for the spoilers. It, it's it's just, very, it, it is very much a TV show with TV show moments. Um it, I I totally agree with you. I think it's it's a mishmash of various different genres at the same time that it is Tarantino style like bloody grotesque revenge porn um, for for Jews against Nazis. It's also um, like a strangely somber memorial of the Holocaust with like all of these shots of, of many flashbacks throughout the entire first season of um, the Safta character and Alpacino's character in the camps. It's also like in the second episode, you get to see these people more, but there's like a black exploitation character, a Kung Fu Asian guy. Like <laughs> it's, it, it has these like undertones of these, of the Cold War spy novel genre. Um, there's these screwball comedy moments. Um, it, it, it has all so Superhero. many different things. It's, it's, 
very much a superhero show without superheroes. Um, and they talk about, and like the main character is a comic book nerd and he talks with his friends about, you know, uh, whether or not the, the superheroes are being good by not doing bad things and the ethics of, you know, oh, yeah, and how Darth do, doing is evil who thinks he's saving the world. Yeah, and the ethics of doing evil in the name of good and stuff like that. So like, none of that actually bleeds into his character that I've seen. It's just in the conversations. <laughs> it, well, it, it in the show's defense, it does. That is a recurring theme throughout the whole thing. Yeah, and like, it you can imagine it gets gritty and it gets intense. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, it's like it's a lot. It, the show is a lot of stuff all at once. And like, there are moments when it's pretty entertaining. Um, there's no doubt. And I think Saul Rubinick and Carol Kane, who play um, this like kvetching oddball couple, this old Jewish couple who are also explosives experts, are like mm-hmm. simply delightful. They both put great performances in. I think Al Pacino does a great job. Um, and, and we were going to discuss this in person in the office, and we were actually going to bring in Ella, Ella Burkowski, our future, the, the future co-host of this show. Yes. Um, and she absolutely loved the show. I can't speak to exactly why, but I think she just, I, I, I suppose she just liked it. And she thought it was, uh, it did a good job of commemorating the Holocaust while also telling an engaging story and illuminating some, some real life secrets about Nazis in, in America that people don't know. Um, and I also know that Noah Liebtag, who hosts another podcast, the DJN podcast network called United We Snack, he did not like the show. Um, because he felt it trivialized the Holocaust. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm going to use that as a note to segue into the, the reason we're asking the question, do Jews need to worry about hunters? Which is that, um, what was it, the, Aus- the Auschwitz Memorial on Twitter, when this came out, they pointed to a scene in the first episode. And this scene is of uh, a, 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 a thing that did not really happen which is that Nazi guards in this TV show round up Jewish um, prisoners and force them to play a real-life game of chess. Like, they make them chess pieces in the camp, and when the chess pieces are eliminated, they kill the Jews. Like, they're on the, on the field. Yeah, the Jews are on the chess pieces, and they have to kill each other. Right, right. That's how it is. Um, and so they're, like, you know, crying and, like, holding up knives toward each other or something like it's it's very strange and very morbid and did not really happen and the auschwitz memorial sent out a tweet i'm going to read the tweet it says auschwitz was full of horrible pain and suffering documented in the accounts of survivors inventing a fake game of human chess for hunters not only dangerous foolishness and caricature it also welcomes future deniers we honor the victims by preserving factual accuracy okay i think that's Poppycock, personally. Um, oh, we're going to have I, a disagreement. Finally. Hey. Um, before before I, I debunk it, that, before I refute it, I should say, I want to hear your argument why you agree with that. I think they're a little bit strong. But I do think, like, if your goal is to increase awareness of the Holocaust, then blurring the lines between truth and fiction isn't a good way of doing that. And I think I don't think it's clear watching the show what's true and what's not if you don't already know. And I think people might go around thinking these things are real. You know, people have no idea to what degree this is true or not. And then they might find out that it's not real and feel like they actually learned nothing from it. And it's also, like they said, you know what weirdly really bothered me about that scene in the camps? The the prisoners were chubby. They had meat on their bones. And it's like, it's not the 
awful overdramatic stuff that the Nazis did that made it so horrible. I mean, there was awful overdramatic stuff that would, you would see in, like, Sophie's Choice or whatever. But it was just the, the mundanity of, like, the evilness day to day that these are just people here that you're treating, like, less than animals. And they're slowly starving and their bodies are giving up on themselves. And it's not the – if you need to, like, use these big dramatic moments to make it seem – like it's something that you should know better than it, it, it's not, I don't know. It, there's something about it that I don't like that, that feels like um, that's the part that I agree with what the, what the tweet. So says. I, I disagree that you can't tell the difference between what happened and what, and what didn't happen. I think the show has two very distinct tones. I think the somber tone in the camps is very different from from the fictional stuff like i think it's presumed that like we know that all of these characters are fictional and we know that uh the, i mean it it perhaps it takes for granted that the holocaust is real um but i don't believe it welcomes future deniers i don't think anybody could plausibly say like look at hunters see they're just making stuff up left right and center like i don't think any neo-Nazis or Holocaust deniers are like, look into hunters as a prime example of uh, invention regarding the Holocaust. It just seems, it's just... No, I, that's the part I, I thought they took it too far. Um, but the other thing I'll, I'll mention, uh, having watched a bit more of the show, is it's literally such a stupid show and such <laughs> an outlandish piece of work that they have to pause and directly look at the camera and address the audience and say, this stuff here, this really happened. And this happens a few times throughout the oh, show. Okay. I've been the when they're like, they're like, I know that this part sounds ridiculous, but this actually did happen, which implies much of the other ridiculous stuff did not happen. And I think that, granted, if you only watch the first episode, you wouldn't, you wouldn't get that. But if you do watch more, they're pretty clear about that distinction. Um, they don't do it every time, obviously. But I think that there's a baseline of the Holocaust existed, that's what's real, and everything else is made up. Um, well, I, I, I agree. It changes things a lot for me. If, if I, 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 I agree that the the invented game of human chess is needless. Um, first of all, because, and I, I, I put this in my article on, on CJN, so if anyone wants a, a more distilled, articulate version of this argument I'm about to make, then please go to cjnews.com. But <laughs> um, the whole game of chess as a metaphor in this show doesn't really make much sense. It's just like, the whole concept is like everybody's trying to stay one step ahead of the next person. But like, even in the introductory, um, the opening credits, it's a, like the opening credits are a game of chess where all the characters in the show are chess pieces. Yeah. But they just, all the characters just move one space forward toward each other until they're face to face, which is not how chess is played. But also, <laughs> I think. <laughs> also, I think it's the best possible metaphor for the actual show, which is it's not how chess is played. It's just throwing a bunch of people against each other and having fun. Yeah. I, I, if only the show realized that about itself a little bit more and was able to lean into the camp of it or the pulp of it. Like like John Wick. Did you ever see John Wick? I, uh, I actually haven't, even though everybody I know has. That's an action movie that knows what it is. And that's why it's so good. And I wish this show had a little more self-awareness. I think the show is, it's incredibly self-aware, but the problem is it also thinks it's very smart. So it kind of does. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, but I, I, I agree that it thinks it's much more intelligent than it is. 
I think it's a very stupid show. I also think it's a kind of fun show. Um, so I would say Jews do not need to worry about hunters. And if you're holed up in self-isolation for the next two weeks, um, it's not, it's, it's, it's a very long show. I don't know if it's mm. necessarily worth it, but I would definitely recommend watching the first episode or two. And, uh, and if you like it, it's, it's a great way to pass the time. Alex, do you think Jews need to worry about hunters though? You seem to think they kind of do. Yeah, I don't know. I, I just feel like when you're using a real event and then making up, I mean, obviously Schindler's List, okay, that's not the best example. There were things in there that didn't happen exactly, but as long as like the things that you think that you put in your show or movie or whatever, things that plausibly could have happened and that we have evidence that similar things did happen, then I don't have a problem because I know you need to show what it was like. But I, I just really don't like the idea of like creating these set pieces totally out of nothing for the sake of drama or metaphor or whatever for your show when there is so much awful suffering that really did happen to draw from. I just, that, that part that I don't like, I don't know if we have to worry about it, but it doesn't sit right yeah. me. There's the, the counter argument being that when you open yourself to a whole world of fiction, you can make something more distinct and original, which they certainly did and got people talking about it, which again, they certainly did. Like, if, yeah. they, if it wasn't so outlandish, we wouldn't be talking about the show right now. Uh, I think. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Inglorious Bastards was probably, there's like a lot of, like, that's totally fake. But there's something, I don't know, there's something, the lines aren't blurry there. There's something about the way they blur the lines that it seems like to me, at least in the first episode. So maybe if I watched more. Yeah. It, it would they'd be they'd be don't don't force so. don't force yourself it's not I don't think I'm gonna watch it. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah I I think what you're hinting at is because there is so much specific real Jewish stuff in there like the prayers they say the Hebrew words you know um the the historical references like there is so much that's deeply researched and accurate so it's kind of jarring to put that up against all this made up nonsense yeah when it's yeah it's just I agree. I, I I think the show is an absolute mess, but I think it's kind of a fun mess. Um, on that note, I think we should wrap this up. This episode actually went on a fair bit longer than I thought it would, so yeah. I hope our listeners are still listening and engaged at the very end. I apologize again about the sound quality. Um, not, I'm honestly not sure if we're going to be back uh, in, in the studio to have some better recording equipment uh, in two weeks, but, but we'll see. Um, in the meantime... Thank you very much for listening to to the Canadian Jewish Moves, dear listeners, and uh, we will see you in two weeks. 